HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, November 7th, 2018. This is the 196th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top private chef for a real estate tycoon, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to push yourself. Set high goals and know that you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. Yes, it's mind over matter. Forget boundaries, go beyond your comfort zone, and reach for the stars. The sky's the limit. Greatness comes to those who persevere. So put your best foot forward and take action. Always strive to be better. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have a guest here with me in the studio. It is J.D. Hilburn. He is the private chef for real estate tycoon A.B. Rosen, who is the co-founder of RFR Holding, which owns over 71 properties around the world. J.D. graduated from the FCI in 2003. He interned at Montrachet and eventually landed in the kitchen at David Boulay's Danube in New York City, working his way up to executive chef within a year. The restaurant received two Michelin stars when he was there, and he met A.B. in 2005 and has been cooking for him in Manhattan, amongst other locations, and he's currently in the process of starting up a test kitchen, experimental dinner party space, fermentation lab, and snack factory. And I can't wait to hear all about that. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. That was a great intro. Ah, thanks. Um, I was thinking of you with my tip because you, you, you just ran a marathon. I did. It was, <laughs> it was difficult as always. It's my second time and it was great weather. And I went out a little too fast. I'm a little sore today, but... It was really, um, 
it's inspiring. Uh, I get a lot of really nice messages from people. And while I tried to downplay it and say, I wish I'd have gone faster, it was, um, it was really fun. I've already signed up again for next year. I, I promised myself. Surprised. Yeah. You promised yourself you'd do it again? No, I promised myself I would not do this again. <laughs> At mile 24, uh, friends afterwards, I said, listen to me now. Do not let me do this. And by the time I got home, I was like, I'm signing up. Yeah, well, it's incredible. You made great time, and just <laughs> running it is 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 an achievement. So, well, thank you. So let's let's get into cooking and how you how you became or what inspired you to become a chef. Well, early on, I was going uh, I was going to school at LSU to be a chemical engineer, and I didn't like doing that. And it was interesting to learn, but I knew I had some feeling I didn't want to do it as a career. It's a very hands-on, it's a trade, and um, I liked learning the engineering part of it and how to solve problems, but I knew I didn't want to do it, and I think there was a little bit of me that wanted to do just what kind of seemed like the opposite of that, and I'd never cooked anything um, in my life. My mom was a great cook. I came from a family that cooked a lot, but I was never into restaurants. I didn't... You know, I don't have the story of like I was uh, washing dishes at 14 and I grew up seeing all these people. Right. And there was this mystery to it. And my friends who were chefs and people I knew, I knew they had this thing that was going on I didn't know about. And so I thought I'd teach myself by watching like Emerald, Bobby Flay, like early Food Network Mm -hmm. and reading the professional cookbook at Barnes and Nobles for free for hours and then I convinced myself that I was like, oh, I'm ready to do this. I'll write a fake resume and go to the country club of Louisiana. So I asked a friend in, uh, in Mobile where I grew up. I was like, what are the names of two restaurants that are closed? Because I knew they couldn't say He'd, he's never worked here. And um, he told me I got in the kitchen and I realized really quickly how hard this was. Um, how interesting it was and I wanted to get better and I also knew that I probably needed to move to New York to do it Um, I knew there was something going on no matter how good I was getting at the country club of Louisiana and Mm -hmm. the the Argosy casino I knew there was a different level to it that wasn't necessarily just about like working a lot harder I needed to be around people who I trusted were were the best Right, so you moved to New York, you went to cooking school. I said, mentioned uh, Montrachet, so you f- immediately you fell into an excellent restaurant. Yes, there was the sort of the French way, of, like the CIA, if I needed a four-year school and get a business degree and to do all of that. But I didn't need that. I needed sort of a quick, intense um, study from Jacques Pepin, from Jacques Torres, from people I knew we're speaking from like the highest level and then you kind of apprentice and they knew there was, you know, there were some people that wanted to work for food and wine magazine. There were some people that just wanted to learn to cook better. And I knew I was on a trajectory to work in restaurants. So the chefs who were there kind of farmed us out a little bit for these internships and me and two other guys asked the chef at Montrachet if we could cover like one shift. It was like, it wasn't even the garmanger shift. It was like making the, making the canapé before. And, you know, that's when I saw, well, like what, when I had, I, you know, kids who hadn't, people who hadn't gone to culinary school were running circles around me. And that's when I realized, you know, how far I was going to have to go with this. Yeah. So then tell, take, take us a little bit through your, your cooking and what led you to Danube and, uh, did you have any mentors along the way? Yeah, I mean, I had um, Chef Henri, at, uh, his last name, I can't remember, got me a job when I graduated at RM, which, was, which is one of the best restaurants a lot of people never kind of heard about. And which I wrote a press release for, <laughs> which is like worlds colliding. But yeah, back when I started doing PR, I was... I was working with another publicist uh, who it was her account and I was a freelancer and I, I wrote some bios and 
Yeah, I, I remember RM and Rick Moonen. So. Yeah, it was a yeah. sneaky good seafood restaurant. And it was also unique in the sense that there wasn't, like, Rick Moonen was, like, mostly kind of in the dining room. I didn't see him that much. We were really young. Everybody kind of was about, like, 25 years old, male, super competitive. And there wasn't the normal hierarchy of a kitchen. Because, like, Matt Acarino, who's the chef, was, I think he was, like, 25 at the time. And there wasn't the sort of, like, father figure chef and everybody a sous chef and everybody kind of scurrying around to try to keep up. It was a pretty competitive self-policing sort of place. And I learned a lot. Imagine. And Matt went to per se when it opened and Johnny, the sous chef, I think went to the French laundry and it just, it sort of changed a lot. Then uh, John Tezar came in, took over the kitchen and that changed a lot and I ended up leaving. I was like, I was the new guy and service got kind of crazy and he was going to Vegas and there was just sort of a lot of chaos. So I left. Um, I guess you could say I got fired. Kind of <laughs> I was really green and it wasn't a great environment and I was really glad when I left and I was like, I'm going to take a month off. I'm going to chill out. Culinary school was tough. I went straight from Montrachet into this. And two days later, I was answering an ad to go to to work for Boulay. And I wasn't, it was through the FCI. So I wasn't sure exactly what restaurant it was for. They didn't yeah. post the name. Right. But, um, but yeah. So, but you were there. You did very well, Michelin stars. And this is Austrian. Right. cuisine you're making schnitzel now right yes but so. <laughs> it was definitely not traditional austrian yeah and you know I, I think the original idea was to open sort of a more casual a more casual thing next to boulet but i don't think the people like in tribeca would allow boulet to do something more casual and so it turned into you know we had 12 course tasting menu and we were we got Michelin stars, but you know, I was making goulash and schnitzels every day. So it was an interesting experience. And when we got started to get some good ratings, like interns and kids from Austria started to show up and they wanted to learn this sort of like cooking from me. And I'm from Alabama and the, everybody else who worked there was like from Texas, other than the pastry chefs who were Austrian and German. But yeah, it was definitely not traditional Austrian food. Mm -hmm. It was, Austrian for sort of high-end Tribeca. Right. Well, it's boulet. <laughs> exactly. People wouldn't tolerate him cooking any less. So how did you meet AB and get this, this I don't know, this idea that maybe you could be a private chef versus working in kitchens? Well, I never, restaurants. I never wanted to be a private chef. And still, I don't think I would, I, I wouldn't do this for anyone else. Like I consider I've only trained in restaurant kitchens. Mm -hmm. I never really cooked at home as a child. So all of the cooking I've ever done has been in an intense culinary school or kind of in nicer restaurants. And uh, my wife at the time, her her boss, the guy he was working for, was, was friends with A.B. And it was always sort of a joke because at dinner parties she get invited to, you know, I was never there. I was working 100 hours at least every week. And... Um, Boulay wanted to, well, he wanted to change the Danube into, I think what it ended up becoming something called succession and all these sort of new concepts. And I was like, I cannot do this. I couldn't do that for him. Like I, I wanted to do, you know, something kind of not lower scale, but you know, it was when the like $30 hamburger was coming out and more kind yeah. of like a, a nice bistro. And I couldn't, I wanted to do either the 12 course tasting menu or sort of nothing. And I, I knew that my wife told me that AB's chef was leaving and they kind of joked like if I would do it or, and she was like, oh, he, JD would never do that. And I was sort of at a point, I was exhausted. I was mm -hmm. like, you know what, I'll, um, I'll talk to him. And then I met him and spoke to him and his wife and, uh, it's sort of a dream job, you know, and they were like, you can have two days off. And I was like, <laughs> wow. 
And, uh, you know, I get to travel to St. Bart's and Southampton and sort of have a life. And it's, um, it's been great. That was 12 or 13 years ago. That's amazing. How did you, um, what was the interview process like? Did you have to cook? A 12 course meal or multiple meals? No, I mean, I mean, it was pretty much, and it's kind of stayed the same way. It's sort of do what you do. Um, I'm never, I'm pretty autonomous with like the menu and whatever we're doing. And AB does a really good job of having the people, from what I can see, the people that he hires do what they're good at. And, you know, whether it's artists, that he's sort of like worked with or, or whatever, he doesn't micromanage me or anything like that. So the, the part of the interview was like cook dinner for him and some of his friends and some of his friends, meaning like 50 people. No, no it was like six <laughs> people. Cause I'm, I'm, yeah, like, I'm okay. cooking and yeah, I like, I can yeah. do that. But the normal thing, it was sort of like cooking for a family and yeah, like I brought stuff from the Danube, and I cheated. I brought, you know, I brought things already prepared from the restaurant. Like, it was it was really good. I made like the beef cheeks, they were kind of on the menu and other stuff, and it was great. And I sort of immediately, you know, he offered me the job, and you know, it's it's the I I have this sort of kind of respect and space to where you know sometimes it's difficult because I'm I feel like I'm trying to be a mind reader. And, you know, the few times they'll request, I want something specific, but mainly his sort of thing to me has just been like, whatever you're passionate about, whatever you feel like doing is going to like produce the best result. So go for it. And yeah, yeah, it's a good gig. It's a good gig. And on that note, let's take a little break. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food. And my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. We're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is J.B. Hilburn. He's the private chef for A.B. Rosen. So what's what's the biggest difference between being a private chef and working in in restaurant kitchens between, well, obviously, I mean, between prepping or how you're planning menus? I mean, do you take that, what what you took from restaurants into what you do now, or is it a totally different sort of mindset cooking for a family? Well, it's a little bit of both, but I didn't really have that much restaurant experience to like pull from or actually not restaurant experience, but like cooking at home. Cause that's what I was doing. And it was a big shift because I was doing, you know, the 12 course three hour tasting menu and, you know, you may only come to the Danube once in your life or three times. So it was kind of an assault. And I really had to figure out how to like tone that down and still kind of like deliver what, what I thought I should be cooking. And, you know, at first it, 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 it's interesting only having one client and because when you're in a restaurant, your research and development, you can make something over and over again. Like by the time something was on a tasting menu, 
I'd made it 500 times and I'd keep changing it. And you'd always learn little things at the end of each night. You're like, oh, that, that'll be perfect with this thing or that. And when you're cooking for one group of people, that research and development takes longer because I can't, you know, I can't do some weird Thai food thing I'm doing three nights in a row, which is kind of what you need to like perfect new things. And so, you know, it's kind of what I'm working on now. I'm trying to like catalog what I'm doing so I'm, I don't feel like I'm starting over a lot. Um, and just trying to get some continuity with sort of like how I'm cooking, how I'm now, how I'm cooking now. But how do you mean with starting over? Like if you were doing Thai food, let's say, right. if you're, are you always doing different dishes when you do Thai food or do you go back to like a pad Thai dish that, you know? Well, if it was something like pad Thai, I would try to make it like completely from scratch. And even with the service, there's always something at the end of, you know, end of each meal, end of each night where you're like, oh, I'd like to change 5% of that. Or I saw something happen, you know, maybe a, a mistake ended up being something you'd want to work on. And so for me, it's in being able to progress ingredients, um, things I'm interested about, things I'm learning about. It's, uh, I'd, I've been looking to kind of find a different way to do this sort of research and cook but I can't, it's not my job to do that sort of to them, to like one family. I need to, I've been trying to figure out a way to improve on some of the, the ideas I have and get some repetition going without, you know, without making the same thing three nights a week. Right. And what about, so you mentioned, so you're document, how are you trying to document this? Is this through photos, through writing down recipes, and then Talk, let's talk about this experimental dinner party space and, and all the, these other projects that you're now starting on the side. Right. This, this sort of came about, um, it actually specifically came about, uh, it was one night I was cooking dinner and I'd been working on this like beet recipe forever. Then I saw a picture on Instagram that someone had paired, paired beets with like a deer heart and it looked like blood <laughs> and I thought that was cool. I was like, I wonder how I make this happen. And I was sick of the beets I was making, braised beets I was making, tasting kind of like the sweet and sour thing. And I wanted it to be meaty and all these different things. And when I sort of serve dinner, I always kind of undersell it, almost to a fault. Like I've served Kobe beef before and just said it's roast beef. Like I'm the opposite of the guy saying like this is yeah. from this farm because that always felt like I was putting a lot of pressure on it. Like... I like I, it though. Yeah, like I'd rather kind of in. undersell mm-hmm. it and have you yeah. kind of be wild by it. And, you know, maybe actually came in the kitchen. And he was like, what is this? These beets. And I was like, why? He was like, oh, it's really good. It's this world-class thing. And I was like, wow. It, it was this simple kind of like side dish. But truth be known, I have been working on this for about two, two years. And it's all these sort of components. And they finally came together. And that's when we kind of both decided that we needed some place to like communicate this because it's not appropriate on a Friday evening for me to give him my like 10,000 word rant on this work I've been doing. <laughs> I need to say that here, here's, <laughs> right, here's beats. But so he was like, buy a camera, you know, start a website and start to kind of like catalog these things. So I was going to take pictures at work and just logistically it kind of, it, it's hard to do because I'm cooking six things at one time. Like, that's the biggest difference between a private chef and a restaurant sort of situation. Even though I get to take control of all of these things, I'm still cooking like five or six things consecutively at the same time. And at the end of every night, I'm like, I wish I had like an hour to do this one thing perfectly. So I kind of needed a space to do that and to record these things. And so then in three months, when I want to make the beats again... I can look back and there'll be little things that I notice or I would have forgotten. And um, video for me is way easier for me to like learn from with cooking because it's such a tactile thing and visually you can see so much going on. And I find it hard to like read about cooking and really hard to write about it. So I got the idea to, on Mondays, after I do like a busy weekend, I take Mondays off to take sort of like one concept 
that I wish I could do over that needs a little bit of improving and make just like a short, simple video of it. And then it would kind of be stuck. Maybe somebody would want to see it. Maybe it's a five minute video on whatever I was going to put on my website and kind of go from there. And that has turned into, you know, I kind of now I live in my apartment. It's like a, a test kitchen that I have. And I started fermenting things there and I started making snacks on Wednesday. Then I'm going to take some of those ideas and on Thursdays, like twice a month, start doing dinner parties, kind of cooking for other people. Because I'm in a really good positive feedback loop with, you know, the people I work for. But but I know what they like. So I need, if I want to go a little off to the right or the left, I need to, I need to experiment with cook for other people and get feedback and have right. guinea pigs sign and me up exactly and people <laughs> you know as i've sort of said this people are interested and friends of mine who are like who are in tv and do video i was like show me how to set up a tripod i don't have a budget this is just something i'm doing at home um it's sort of turned out i've gotten a lot of attention from people who want to be sort of involved with this in food media in I've made some cool videos and people seem interested in this. Well, it's exciting. It's exciting. And I'm sort of going through, I'm sort of filling in the gaps where restaurants are better research and development factories than like home cooks. So I I needed the process of constantly cooking, but I can't do that at his house because it's it's inappropriate. No, that makes sense. Are you involved at all with, any of his restaurant projects no. or do you give any feedback because he's he has quite a few right i mean we talk about it but i'm definitely a separate thing i mean yeah. that's and that's one of the things i like about about kind of what i'm doing i've always sort of been treated as this thing for that like i'm really only cooking for them i'm not you know i'm not like farmed out or cooking for other people like this is a sort of personal thing a lot of people come over you know cook for chefs there and it's always us just doing what we do you know i'm it's always do what you do and i'm i'm more interested in like who's coming what what chef is this i want to cook this way and he's always had this trust of like we're kind of got the best thing going here so let's Mm -hmm. do that so yeah i don't i mean we talk about it and i've been to I still haven't been to like, but, um, I, I, yeah, no, no but, um, Cuckoo's awesome. They just got to star too. Yeah. Which we'll talk and, about. um, that's funny. Yeah. You haven't been, but that is, I've, I don't repeat that much and I've been three times. <laughs> exactly. And, but that's one of the things I like. It's this mutual sort of respect and autonomy that I get and not be, and sort of not being micromanaged and it allows me to be creative and to do my own thing. And he's always the one sort of pushing me to do bolder things and try different stuff. I'm my sort of default is to like play it safe. And that's why I'm this test kitchen sort of stuff gives me a space to make those mistakes because I take it so seriously what I do like on a daily basis. Yeah, you're passionate. So I can invite five friends over and, you know, burn their face with Szechuan peppercorns (laughs) and then maybe take a little bit of that to work. That's cool. So I don't know. We'll see how you answer this question, but let me ask you my question from my last show. I had on Michael Solomonoff on episode 195. He's the co-founder of Cook and Solo Restaurant Partners, and that includes several restaurants, such as Zahav, based in Philadelphia. And he has a new cookbook out, which we were talking about, called Israeli Soul. Okay, so he wants to know, since AB has his new hotel, the Jaffa in Tel Aviv, which he's doing with the major food group, would he want to open another restaurant in a boutique hotel in Israel? And if so, are they in need of a chef? Wink, wink. That is a very good question. And that is one I have no information for. <laughs> I was and thinking. I, and I'm glad I don't know. Okay. Now, well, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe if AB's listening. Um, yeah, that hotel is amazing. I've and heard. Of, I've heard. The food looks incredible. And um, have you been there? Have you been out to Israel? I have not. Okay. Uh, that yeah. trust me, it's on the list of things and places to do next. Okay. Well, 
Well, I'm sorry, Michael. We we don't have information <laughs> for you, but but they'll uh, get in touch with you if they need you. <laughs> yeah. No. It, so, okay, we're going to take another break. We're going to come back. We're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is J.D. Hilburn. It's time for my speed round game. Are you ready? I think I'm ready. You, you, I think you know how this goes. I'm going to name a couple of things and you pick your preference. Okay. All I'll right. look surprised. <laughs> Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat, eat out, definitely. I'm suffer from like the curse of the chef who doesn't like want to cook at home and I have small children and they like my cooking, but they also like shake shack in the restaurant downstairs. It's ridiculous. And <laughs> they like my sous chef assistant and his pasta is better. My younger daughter has no filter. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I would say okay. eat out and eat out food that I wouldn't necessarily cook. Sounds like you cook everything though. So yes. that's, <laughs> that's that to be continued. Okay, let's keep going. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Mocktail. I, um, yeah, I don't drink. I used to, and I don't anymore. Yeah. Go f- Here's to the mocktail. <laughs> How about tasting menu or a la carte? I guess it depends where it is. Um, because I don't eat out enough at nicer restaurants, if there is a tasting menu, uh, I'll get it. Um, yeah, there's too much pressure a la carte at a really good place. And I, I remember as a chef giving the better stuff for that and and, be, and being happy when people kind of let you pick it. Yeah. You know, what's good that day and whatever. Like, definitely the tasting menu. How about small plates or large plates? Small, just because I get bored. And I want to try a lot of different things. And I don't eat that much at one time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've always sort of had that mentality, even my own cooking. This is not a part of the game, but I want to know okay. what did you eat the night before you ran the marathon? Did you carb load? Yes, I had pizza and pasta, but not too much. Okay. From yeah, it was it was a delivery. Uh, I did it by myself, and um, I even took a picture of it. <laughs> I don't know if I saw that on Instagram, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. How about communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. I mean, that's even... A, yeah, I like to watch. I, I You know, I, I'm, I had a lot of... I miss the, uh, the restaurant, so I like to see and like to remember it. I'm a problem if, if I'm with you at a restaurant and I can see the kitchen. I'm going to be looking at it yeah, the whole time. watching. So... What about tipping or all-inclusive charge? Oh, I guess it depends on the place. I mean, I always... God, I could go either way. I mean, I, I get both ways. I like to tip more, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. All right. The grill or the pool? I've only eaten at the pool. The snacks at the pool, I think... The snacks the, at the pool. The, the, the like first courses at the pool were fantastic. I mean, by the time I, you know, I got like the, the giant whole fish and it was great, but the stuff I remembered is like, I remember just tasting the butter being like, oh, okay, this, they've nailed this. this and after the third meal. thing, not in a bad way, but I was like, I could, I could stop here. Okay. We got three more. I put in here marathons or Ironman competitions. Cause I believe you've done that too. I did a half Ironman 
and um, the the New York City Marathon is great. It's the it's the most painful. And the Half Iron Man, you get to have like toys and bikes, and you swim. It's that whole thing. But for a concentrated like meditation on suffering, definitely the marathon. <laughs> You're really selling it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cheese plate or dessert? I guess it depends where you are. Like we're we're in St. Bart's. And uh, the cheese is a big deal there, you know. uh, (laughs) Mental note. When in St. Bart's have the cheese? um, Well, bring your own cheese. It's an island. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I just like the way that the French sort of treat cheese as a dessert. But, um, yeah, I would get the cheese plate if it's interesting. Manhattan or Brooklyn? I live in Brooklyn now. I liked, um, for, for living... Yeah, it's Brooklyn right now. Okay, Brooklyn. Here's to Brooklyn. Yeah. That's it. That's the game. I liked hearing your explanations. Okay, so industry news. Article in Fortune magazine entitled, Restaurant Reservations Tech Space Consolidates as Resi Buys Competitor Reserve. This article is by Rachel King. And they're talking, obviously, about Resi, who I've, I've had Ben Leventhal on my show um, as one of the co-founders and how they've, they've merged with or bought out Reserve, which they were co- competition, but they're joining forces. And I think it's a smart move being that they're, going, they're still going up against Open Table and they're trying to get their, make their way in the market and they were just competing against each other. So... Um, they are now the the largest private restaurant reservation service in the United States with the merger. Yeah, I'm all for all of that being simplified. Like th- that sort of stuff for me is to a fault. Like keeps me out of some of the nicer places. Like, and you get spoiled being a chef that you can always just kind of call somebody. Especially with, you know when you're working in <laughs> yeah. restaurants. And I still can kind of do that, but um, yeah, I don't think I've ever used Open Table or Resi or anything. I'm I get I usually yeah, the chef the chef the yeah, text I get annoyed you text really, someone yeah I really okay. I get annoyed quickly if there's like hoops you have to jump through yeah. and I'll be like I'll I'll stay home. But I'm with you with simplifying it because I'm someone who makes a lot of reservations. I'm usually the person right. who's selecting the restaurant <laughs> and in charge. So, and it used to be, you know, you'd go to open table and then all these other res- reservation systems started and I have all the apps on my phone. I've used Resi a lot. I haven't for some reason used Reserve as much, but I think it's it's it is a part of like where you go or even when you're searching for ideas of where to go, you know, maybe yes. I'll go on Resi and just kind of scroll through and see what's available. So I think merging is, is something makes it easier for consumers to find restaurants. And even for restaurants, too, like just the idea of knowing in the nicer restaurant, you know, places that are full, it doesn't matter. But I remember sort of the last few days, of the Danube, we were, you know, it really helped with our food costs and everything. Know how many people were coming and mm-hmm. how many people you know, you kind of figure it out, but um, to have all of that streamlined just for restaurants and customers, it sounds like a good thing. Yeah, I think so. So good for them. Other article I had in the New York Times in Florence Fabricant's Off the Menu column, she summarized the Michelin rankings that was announced yesterday in for this is Michelin Guide for New York City that came out. Uh, and they've been doing it since 2004, as we noted earlier. You got your two Michelin stars at when, when you were at Danube, right? That was the my first day working. Was the first day they were they were in New York City. It was rough. It I was nervous. Yeah, but it's such a it's a it's a huge deal. And this, you know, it's really exciting that there were there were some new restaurants added in onto the list like Gabriel Kruther now has two stars and I want to give them a shout out because I'm I'm working with uh, Glenn Coben he has this new book right. out on the architect's cookbook and he designed that restaurant so it's really they weren't on the list and now they have two stars and it's um, it's it's very exciting yeah that 
getting the second one really puts you in a smaller category. And it's, it's interesting how people even, I remember being just terrified of the Michelin stuff and just that that would, that would be the worst day ever. Not only getting them, but I remember getting it and being like, Oh my God, if I lose one, this is a nightmare. And I think it's a better place now that it, not that it doesn't mean as much. It's just that there's other outlets, you know, it used Mm -hmm. to be like a bad review from the times or Michelin and you're like off the map. And that's it. You know, there, there wasn't the sort of like groundswell of like your fans and, you know, nobody's following you on Instagram. It was like, you got a bad review and that's what you are. And now you get to go to your cooks and be like, remember how I asked you to work for free or for this? Like it, it's such a morale killer. Michelin still looked such an amazing honor, but it's kind of good to see that you don't need it to still have, Yeah, you know, your yeah. your audience, your your customers. That's true. I mean, that's people. I mean, I don't want to go through, read all the names, even though I did print it all out of who got stars. But the same, um, the three Michelin stars are maintain uh, re- were retained by five restaurants in Manhattan, which is the the Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair and Eleven Madison Park and Le Bernardin and Massa and Per Se. And then there were a bunch of new one-star restaurants. And then there's the Bib Gourmand. So people, you, you know, you can Google that and look it up. And I'm just happy for all the chefs. Congratulations to, to all these restaurants. Definitely. You know, it's nice to be, nice to get more recognition for the hard work. Really hard. You know that. Okay, we're going to take one more break. We're going to come back and we'll do my solo dining experience and we'll have the final question. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. A fond farewell Not overdue, but just as well It's time to shake the bonds that bind you to the streets, to the night this thirst for life The correlate of finite time You let it grow, now it consumes you And you're lost to the premise To the promise of it all I pretend to nothing innocent Think of all the wasted days you've spent Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at the Four Seasons Restaurant. The location, 42 East 49th Street, Midtown, New York. The concept, it's a restaurant for all seasons. The owners, Alex Von Bitter and Julian Nicolini. The chef is Diego Garcia. Pastry chef is Bill Yosis, and just a side note, Bill used to be the White House executive pastry chef from 2007 to 14. So why did I go? Because I was curious to check out their brand new digs. So my experience. I made a reservation for one on the early side on a recent Friday night. I was greeted right away. I was brought back to the main dining room. I had a little bit of a deja vu experience because the setup of this new Four Seasons is very similar to the original location. I was seated at a a table in the back of the center of the dining room, which I had a nice view of all the action, and it filled up as... As the night went on, I got to watch everyone come in, and there were a lot of regulars there, and Julian Nicolini was walking around the room. He greeted me briefly, and it was I had a really great time. My servers took really lovely care of me. There was uh, The staff had been with, with the restaurant group for a really long time, um, so they, they certainly knew the menu well and hospitality. So what did I get? I went with the tuna carpaccio with soy ginger sauce. I had the Four Seasons Farmhouse duck with pepper sauce. Now, this is duck for two, but I asked nicely if they could make it for one person, and they were able to, which I was actually surprised they were able to do that, but they did. I also had dark chocolate souffle and coffee because I figured while I was there, I might as well go for it. 
So my take. Everything was wonderful. The The carpaccio was light, fresh, delicious. The duck was served tableside, and it was really, you know, very well executed. Great tableside service. The souffle was divine. It was a really great meal. So the ambiance is modeled after the original space. I'd say it's a bit smaller version, and the pool room does not have a pool. I don't think they're calling it the pool room. or Maybe they are, but there's no pool. Perfect for... Old School Elegant Dining. Interesting tidbit. So the original Four Seasons opened in 1959 in the Seagram Building, which is owned by A.B. Rosen. So I'm tying this show together. Their lease was not renewed, so they closed in July 2016, and they opened in this new location in August 2018. And the grill and the pool at the Seagram Building are now run by the major food group. So personal fun fact, I've dined at all of these grills and pools, (laughs) and I've really enjoyed all of them, but I've never dined at any of them alone until this time. The cost was $134, that's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, but I'd say on a special occasion because it is pricey, and I'd probably go to the front bar room first. Um, It looked like a nice place to have a few snacks and drinks. Their website is fourseasonsrestaurant.com. What do you think? (laughs) Sounds about right. (laughs) Sounds about what you should get there. I I wanted the duck. I thought they were going to say, no, it's for two. But they were really lovely. That is nice of them. It was. I mean, (laughs) it was a, I think it was a $65 for one portion of duck. But I went. You can have as much as you want. It's still the same. Yeah. Well, anyways, it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Joanne Wilson of Gotham Gal Ventures. She's an angel investor, blogger, and podcaster at Positively Gotham Gal. And I actually did an interview for her show that will come out at some point, I think, this year, which I'm excited about. So I'm going to be on Positively Gotham Gal. Cool. Yeah, cool. So, uh, JD, what would you like to ask Joanne? Well, the little that I know about her is that she's always kind of like, look, if she's an angel investor, she's looking for kind of like new stuff in restaurants and art and all of that. And with social media and with so many people being able to put their stuff out, I wonder, I'd like to ask her where, what's her trick or what does she do to sort of get in the five minutes before everybody else? Like, does she you know, walk around the city and find little places in Chinatown? Does she go to galleries, but um, I guess just in this sort of age of everybody being able to put their stuff out there and everybody to kind of know about everything at the same time, I wonder what it's like for somebody like her to discover these new things that are on the ground floor. And, um, you know, I've, I have artist friends, they're close friends I've already think I've missed the boat on. They're already too expensive or not too much stuff. <laughs> so... Uh, I I wonder if somebody like her is established when she's looking for new sort of like raw startup things, what is she doing to find that? And if she has a trick, and she probably won't tell us the really good one, but maybe the second one. I'll try to get the really good one. Okay. (laughs) I'll I'll work it as best as I can. You can tell me. Okay. That's the show. Thank you. It was great. Yeah, it was great. I'm, I, I, I think it's, your career is really amazing and that you've you've found this this great role with as a private chef working for AB, you know, and now you're doing other projects. It's it's exciting. Yeah, I'm just getting started and I'm excited to, you know, do these dinner parties and start this website and make these videos and sort of fill in the blanks and sort of bridge the gap between sort of Michelin starred restaurant cooking and stuff that home cooks can do at home, which kind of brings everybody's like level up to cook everything yeah and um so yeah look out for it it's coming do you have a website now or is it coming because it's coming it's a very it's a very simple one right now it'll be just my name jd hilburn okay um but all of you know i've been there for two or three months and everything's starting to kind of to kind of roll and the next month or two um yeah great I look forward to it. And yeah, sign me up for for dinner party. (laughs) (laughs) So my guest today has been J.D. Hilburn. He is a private chef for 
A.B. Rosen, a real estate tycoon who has many properties. And uh, you can find him on Instagram at J.D. Hilburn. You can find me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. And my websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. I want to let you all know that Heritage Radio Network, we're having another holiday party and tasting. It's the Winter in the Garden is what it's called, and it's taking place on Monday, December 3rd in the Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. So tickets are on sale now. You can go to heritageradionetwork.org slash gala and find out more about that. And uh, all of our shows... Are archived also on heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. So you can find us whatever your favorite place to listen to is. Uh, thanks to my engineer today, Noam, and thanks again to JD. I am Sherry Bayer. I will be back next week with another live show. I hope you will tune in then. Thank you for being, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.